At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we examine the relationship between populism and technocracy as structuring poles of contemporary politics. In order to explore that issue, we're fortunate to have with us today Carlo Invernizzi Accetti, uh, the Associate Professor of Political Theory at the City College of New York and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Carlo maintains affiliations with the Center for European Studies of the Institut d'Etudes Politiques, better known as Sciences Po, and with Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, perhaps better known as SIPA. He's the author of two books on the role of religion in democratic politics and societies, one of which is called What is Christian Democracy? Politics, Religion, and Ideology on Cambridge University Press, and most recently, a co-edited volume called Ideologies and the European Union, published by Rutledge. He's also co-authored with Christopher Bickerton of Cambridge University, the forthcoming book, Technopopulism, Technopopulism excuse me, The New Logic of Democratic Politics, uh, which is the subject, really, of our discussion here today. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, Carlo Invernizzi Accetti. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Thanks very much. So let's start with, you know, this term technopopulism. Um, you know, what do you mean by that? I think most observers would see technocracy and populism as opposites. But you argue that there's a in this book that there's a deep affinity between the two. Could you please explain? Yes. So we started writing this book really in the aftermath of uh, uh, the previous economic crisis, uh, the great crisis, which started in 2008 in the United States, but really reached its peak in Europe in between 2011 and 2012, uh, reflecting on some of the effects that that crisis was having on the politics, in particular of European countries. And something that several observers at the time were noticing is that uh, both the reaction to the crisis, 
and if you will, the reaction to the reaction of the crisis, we're restructuring politics in Europe in a particular way, because the reaction to the crisis, the way in which the crisis was dealt with, was very technocratic. The European Union, famously the Troika, imposing technocratic austerity measures on many countries, particularly of the South, was said to have generated a populist counter-reaction, that's what I'm calling the reaction to the reaction, uh, and thereby we had a politics in Europe that was increasing on one hand technocratic and on the other hand populist. And it was said that this opposition between technocracy and populism was replacing the opposition between left and right as the structuring poles of European politics. And we, we had many examples of that at the time in Europe. So, for instance, in Italy, my country, you had Monti. Mario Monti, the technocrat imposed from the European Union, and then the Five Star Movement and Grillo as a populist reaction. Something similar in Greece with Papademos, a technocrat imposed from the European Union, and Syriza as a populist reaction. And then again in France, you had the famous struggle between Le Pen, far-right populist, and uh, uh, Macron, uh, often seen as a darling of the European technocrats. An interesting thing that all of these actors had in common was that they all considered to, they all presented themselves as if they were neither left nor right. Uh, this was perhaps most stark in the case of the French election of 2017, where both uh, Le Pen and Macron initially ran on the same slogan, ni droite ni gauche, neither left nor right. So there was, th th this all seemed to confirm the thesis that left and right are fading in Europe and populism and technocracy are replacing them as the new structuring poles. However, what we noticed was that actually the relationship between populism and technocracy is a little bit more complicated because they're not just opposite of each other. We started noticing that some of the so-called populists, such as the Five Star Movement in Italy, had some surprising technocratic features, and some of the supposed technocrats had some surprising populist features. So, for instance, in the Five Star Movement in Italy, which is clearly a populist party, it ran against the establishment, it ran in the name of claiming to represent the people, uh, the famous slogan, uno vale uno, everybody is worth one, and against the elites, uh, also has, strangely, if you dig a little bit in their discourse, a deeply technocratic conception of politics based on the idea of solving problems. This, uh, Grillo, the founder, once says, politics is like plumbing. There are problems and we have to fix them. And politicians are like plumbers that we hire to fix our problems. Uh, so a, a, a conception of politics oriented to problem solving. But even more deeply than that, this idea of a very important concept for the Five Star Movement was this idea of collective intelligence. They are one of the first so-called online parties, and their idea was that the, the Internet could be a way of harnessing the expertise of all the citizens in order to solve problems more effectively. So this online platform that they have, Rousseau, is seen as a way of taking expertise for all the, from different people across the country to produce more effective and competent solutions. And so here we have the figure of th this idea that everyone is an expert, uh, this idea of the citizen expert as the more competent problem solver than the experts themselves. Uh, 
Grillo once famously said, if I come, if we go to government, we'll put a housewife with three kids at the Ministry of Finance because she knows better about economics than these supposed econo- economists. This is a figure of, uh, this is a, mixes a populist and a technocratic element. It's an it's, argument about expertise. It's very Gramscian in well, the sense that everybody's, an, according to Gramsci, everyone's an intellectual as a result of having a roadmap of their own lives. And I mean, is that crazy? No, I, I, I happen to think that Gramsci had still an ideological approach to politics. Uh, an idea that there is a conflict between values, a conflict between classes, whereas I, uh, as I, uh, I think an important feature of both populism and technocracy is that they claim to stand for the interests of the whole. Uh, and uh, the populists claim to represent the people, uh, technocrats claim to represent the general interest, the truth, and techno-populists, and this is the category I'm getting to, a party like Five Star Movement is understood as techno-populist because it mixes both features. So in that sense, I think it is very different from something like the Communist Party, which is a party founded by Gramsci, which didn't claim to stand for the people, claimed to stand for a particular section of society, like the working class, uh, and opposed to another section of society. So I, I think that actually... Uh, my idea was that it's not very Gramscian, actually. It's it's pretty different from how politics was done in the middle part of the 20th century. Another example we take is Macron, who's often considered a technocrat, but has a deeply populist approach to politics uh, in that he, first of all, obviously this embodiment model. His party is initially was called Anne Marche, which the initials are Emmanuel Macron, uh, and he is the, the embodiment of his party. He, uh, La République en marche is, La République is Emmanuel Macron. Uh, and so this, this embodiment model, this, this highly leaderistic aspect, and then the fact that he ran against the establishment, against the parties. So in Emmanuel Macron, I think is more similar to the Pfizer movement in that he also mixes populist and technocratic elements, not through this figure of the citizen expert, like you have in the Five Star Movement, but through the figure of the people's doer. Macron is this figure that represents, that, that, that stands as a doer, the person who can solve problems for the people. And this leads us to the concept of technopopulism. We see all these parties mixing and mashing populist and technocratic elements, like the Five Star Movement, like Macron. So the main thesis of our book is this, that the real difference today is not between left or right or between populism and technocracy. What politicians today compete on is the different ways of mixing and mashing both populist and technocratic elements. Uh, Macron is a, what we call a form of technopopulism from above, this leader who is also a doer. And the Pfizer movement is technopopulism from below. Uh, this citizens, experts coming together on the web to solve problems. So that those are the real differences. The, the, the real differences in politics today is how different politicians mix and mash both populist and technocratic elements. That's what we call the new logic of today's politics, technopopulism. 
how everybody, everybody is becoming increasingly a techno-populist in as much as they mix both populist and technocratic elements and as such are different from the ideological politics of the past. Um, so could you say a little bit more about um, Podemos in Spain? How does Podemos fit into this? You make an argument in the book that Pit Podemos, which seems to have rather strong what we probably would call populist roots, uh, is actually fits into this techno-populist uh, category. So Podemos, too, is another example uh, of, of techno-populism for us in as much as it, it has a clearly a self-consciously populist identity. The, some of its founders are uh, academic disciples of Laclau and th- th- thought of themselves as a, a, articulating a, a, a populist project against the technocratic elites in a way that is not too dissimilar from Syriza and to some extent also the Five Star Movement, but also has a deeply technocratic appeal. For instance, I mentioned that they were disciples of Laclau. Many of its founders were professors. It was initially called a Partido de Profesores, uh, a party of professors who had this very pedagogical approach to politics uh, in the the calm explanation of solving problems. Again, another common, uh, another common discourse that they use is this idea of common sense. Podemos as a party of common sense, of, of common sense solution to practical problems. So initially, especially in its early phase, we describe Podemos as a techno-populist party in a way that's similar to the Five Star Movement and uh, to uh, La Republican Marche in France. But at, at, as it developed, I, we saw that it, it moved back towards a more traditional social democratic left-wing identity. And this leads us to qualify our thesis a little bit in in that we say that this new techno-populist logic that governs European politics today, where populism and technocracy are the main structuring poles, does not entirely replace the traditional left-right division, but as actually superimposes itself upon it. So today we have two logics at work in Europe. The traditional left-right division and then, on top of it, the n- new techno-populist logic, where parties compete in terms of both, uh, in terms of how they ma- mix and mash populist and technocratic elements. And Podemos is a good example of how the two logics coexist in an uneasy way with each other, because it is, we call it a form of left-wing techno-populism. So... I mean, we've been talking so far about this as a phenomenon at sort of the European level, but the three countries that you focus on, um, as far as I can tell, are Spain, Italy, and France. Is it a coincidence that we're talking about the three principal Catholic or, you know, historically Catholic countries and Latin in culture, so to speak? Is this something that's happening outside of those countries? Yes. Well, I would say yes. Actually, my co-author, Christopher Bickerton, who's based at Cambridge, is from the UK. Uh, and one of our important cases is actually the UK. Uh, and here we, we go back a little bit in time, and we think one of the early manifestations of this techno-populist logic, uh, an important transition, let's say, out of the more traditional ideological conflict of the past and into this contemporary techno-populist logic is actually Tony Blair and New Labour, or the so-called third way, 
we, we see Tony Blair as one of the earliest embodiments of this logic, in as much as Blair had precisely both populist and technocratic elements. So famously, he, 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 he removes references to the idea of appealing to a part of society, to the working class, in the discourse of new labor, uh, uh, and appeals to the people. The discourse of the people in Tony Blair is uh, pervasive. Uh, Diana's funeral was called the people's funeral. The, the dome that was constructed in 2000 in London is the people's dome. So a constant, a, a very populist rhetoric of like this new labor that breaks with the old shackles of the past and is innovative, is anti-establishment. So there's a populist component to Blair, but also a deeply technocratic element. His famous slogan was, what matters is what works. He presented himself as, you know, it's not left or right, it's this third way, and what matters is what works. I give effective problem, effective solutions to solve the people's problems. So I think there is, uh, even in, in Northern European, uh, uh, primarily prot uh, Protestant countries, uh, this is a logic which I don't think is only Southern European, we describe it as as a European logic. Then it goes also travels outside of Europe, even though that's not an era we focus on. In, in Latin America, there has been Carlos de la Torre has been writing on many Latin American authors, uh, figures who also mix and mash populist and technocratic elements, like Rafael Correa. Uh, in Ecuador, uh, this populist who was also a professor giving PowerPoint lectures instead of like rallies. <clears throat> so, yes, we, we, our claim is not that this is exclusively a Catholic or a Southern European phenomenon. What about the United States? I mean, we've just been through a period that would certainly be called populist under Donald Trump, however catastrophic uh, that all played out catastrophically. Um, and I wonder, you know, does this sort of uh, discussion that you're uh, developing, does, does this apply to the United States particularly? I, I, I'm not sure I see it. So in the United States, this United States is not one of our cases. But I, while we were developing the book, we certainly saw many, many links and many possibilities of the concept to travel. Of course, the 2016 election was very much framed like an opposition between populism and technocracy. We had on one side the arch-populist Donald Trump, who claims to stand for the people uh, against the swamp, uh, whereas on the other hand you had this uh, supposed expert policy wonk who was incapable of appealing to the people, Hillary Clinton, but was would have done the effective policies. So this was a classic frame that was that was applied uh, to the 2016 election, and in my opinion continued in the framing of the Trump presidency very much throughout the Trump presidency. Uh, you had. The idea that the best way to crit the way in many ways the way uh, the Democratic Party uh, criticized Trump was on technocratic grounds, on the grounds that he undermined truth. Uh, you think of the New York Times campaign, truth, 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 uh, against this like uh, incompetent, ignorant, uh, populist movement, and this is even more clear in the case of the pandemic. 
the, the way in which Trump's reaction to the pandemic was framed was very much expertise versus populism. Uh, this, Trump is incompetent because he only cares about popularity and is not taking care of science. Here, too, I think it's actually a little more complicated than, than a simple opposition between populism and technocracy. Because if you look a little more carefully to Trump's discourse, it's actually not simply populist. There are, bizarrely, claims to expertise being made all the time by Trump. Uh, bizarre maybe claims to expertise, but this feeds into the point I'm about to make. For instance, well, one of the ways in which he came to power, he claimed to have a special competence, a special expertise in making deals, the art of the deal. I'm, a, I'm an expert because I'm not a politician, because I'm a successful businessman, I have this special competence in making deals. And this is supposed to be the ground. And that's how I'm going to get you great healthcare. The same with COVID. Actually, Trump never claimed to ignore science. He claimed to have his own science. Uh, he touted the number of bizarre cures, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, light uh, and then hydroxychlorine. And so what Trump was doing was not only appealing to his own popularity, he was making his own claims to expertise uh, uh, as well. And as such, had, if I, if I may, a technocratic component, a technocratic component which consists in claiming to be an expert and to be able to appeal to expertise, of course, the answers that liberals uh, or technocrats make to these claims to expertise contained in Trumpist discourse is that's not real expertise. The, the true science is on our side. The science he appeals to is phony science. But that, in my opinion, merely reveals what it, uh, the weakness of the if you, liberal democratic strategy against Trump w relying on these technocratic appeals to competence and expertise, which is that once you start using competence as a political tool, everybody can do it. He says he, he has his alternative facts, his alternative science, and then the whole point of science is that it's supposed to be non-political. If you use it as a political tool, then it, science becomes inserted into the political discourse and you get America's political situation today, which is competing claims to popularity and expertise, competing with one another uh, as the main grounds of politics. So while America is not our case, uh, I see that the, the, a lot of American politics seems to revolve around competing claims to embody the people and to have the necessary expertise to uh, realize its will. Well, there's obviously much that could be said about the American situation, but um, since you're focusing primarily on Europe, let's stick with that for the moment. And there's been developments you mentioned already, uh, Italy being your own country. There have been some very important recent political developments in Italy. That is to say, the ruling coalition has fallen and Mario Draghi, the former head of the European Central Bank, has been brought in to rescue a government that has been adrift for some time under Giuseppe Conte. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit. I mean, Draghi is famous, of course, for having said he would do whatever it takes as uh, head of the European Central Bank. He would do whatever it takes to save the euro and the European economy. Uh, a few years back in the middle of the 
crisis that, as you say, you know, had shifted from the U.S. to Europe. And um, so he enjoys considerable stature on the Italian and, and indeed the European stage and even the international stage. So I wonder where you think he will lead Italy in the coming period. Yes. Um, so Italy, as I mentioned, was one of our starting cases and this one of the early laboratories of technopopulism with this initial opposition between the five-star movement under Grillo and Mario Monti as a clearly technocratic government. And in many ways now Italy has come full circle, has come full circle because it, the government today is perhaps the, to date, the purest and the clearest example of how populism and technocracy can come together. Because what's happening in Italy now, the bizarre thing is that the Five Star Movement, which began as an anti-technocratic populist party, has now banded together with the technocrats and is one of the main supporters of Draghi government. So the bizarre thing is that Beppe Grillo, just a couple of days ago, declared Draghi, the arch-technocrat, the head of the European Central Bank, the architect, as you say, of quantitative easing and of the European response to the crisis, he said, Draghi is a grillino. Draghi is one of us because he wants to solve problems. He's, he's against the elites. He wants to break the parties and he is going to lead Italy out of the crisis. And on the other hand, Draghi himself is being placed in this very populist position that Trump, for instance, tried to inhabit and every, and Macron tries to inhabit of the, the savior. The man who comes in to break the deadlock and resolve the crisis. So, again, here you see a clear, a clear mixture of the two. If there ever was a techno-populist government, it is the government of Draghi supported by the Five Star Movement. In terms of where this will lead, I'm happy to ask this question because it, it enables me to refer to a chapter in our book which talks about the consequences of techno-populism. Uh, if it is true that uh, we wrote this book before this government came to power, but if it is true that our analysis holds and what we're seeing is more and more a mixture of populism and technocracy, we, we can look at what the consequences of this would be to try to think about where Draghi will lead Italy. And we talk in the book about three main consequences of, of technopopulism. Uh, all of which derive from the features of its core components, the, the populism and technocracy being the main structuring poles of Italian and, I claim, most other advanced politics in most other advanced democracies. So the first consequence we talk about is increasing conflictuality. Increasing conflictuality. Because both populists and technocrats claim to stand for the interests of the whole, of the whole of society, the people or the general interest and against the parts, parties, particular interests or what technocrats call special interests, they really have no space for recognizing the legitimacy of opposition. Neither populists nor technocrats can understand that there can be others who disagree with them. Uh, populists represent the whole people. If you're not one of the people, you must be an enemy of the people, as Trump said. And technocrats the same. If you stand for the truth, whoever is against you is in error. There is no space for the re recognition of legitimacy of opposition. 
And when politics becomes structured in terms of these two poles, therefore others, political competitors, become enemies. So you move from adversaries to enemies. There, there is no recognition of legitimacy, and so politics becomes increasingly conflictual as uh, parties increasingly attack each other's legitimacy rather than each other's policies. So the more a country becomes technopopulist, the more you're likely to see an increase in conflict, uh, in the bitterness of conflict uh, 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 between them, increasing personalization of attacks and things like that. The second consequence we talk about is desubstantialization. By this we mean that actually politicians fight a lot today because they don't recognize each other's legitimacy, but they don't fight, fight about very much. Because they both claim to represent the interests of the whole, actually their policy agenda is very similar. There's not much substantive disagreement, in fact, as evidence shows, between the policy agenda of something like the Five Star Movement or the policy agenda of something like, uh, you know, the PD in Italy, the, 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 the center-left party, or somebody like Draghi. They all want to serve the interests of the whole, so they, they don't rely on, they don't represent particular sectors of society which have particular interests, a class or I don't know, a region. Everybody stands for the interests of the whole. So actually, they fight a lot, but they don't fight about very much. Uh, there, there's very little substantive disagreement. The disagreement is more about each other's legitimacy. So first expectation about Italy is increasing conflictuality, decreasing substance to political conflict, and this leads to a third consequence, which is the last one we talk about, which I expect to happen in Italy, is democratic dissatisfaction. And this is an interesting paradox for us, which is the fact that as increasingly as politicians claim to represent the people and to be competent at realizing their goals, people hate them more and more. As politicians become more populist and more technocratic, people hate politicians more and more. As politicians claim to be less like professional politicians and more to represent the interests of the people as a whole, we see that it starts with Blair, and up to today, there's every, if there's something everybody can agree is that they all hate politicians. And for us, this, this is, this is, this is tied to the logic of technopopulism in as much as Claiming to represent the interests of the whole rather than grounding yourself in particular interests within society makes you increasingly detaches politics from society. Increasingly, you have a separation of uh, a politics of the whole in the state and a social interest which are increasingly dis uh, disaggregated from each other and separated from one another. And so you have an increasing separation between politics and society which leads to increasing dissatisfaction. So we claim that technopopulism is both a symptom of a crisis of representation, but a cause of increasing dissatisfaction as well. So what do I expect for Italy with Draghi? Not much. That's very good. We'll have increasingly conflictual politics about less and less, and people will be more and more dissatisfied. It's fascinating. I thought the issue of the separation of politics from society was one of the very interesting you know, arguments you make in the book. 
Um, and you've addressed this already to some extent, this question of whether or not techno-populism as a political style is going to replace the old, the very long-standing now uh, distinction between left and right as rooted in you know certain segments of society. Could you say a little bit more about how you see that playing out? I mean, is this techno-populism? You know, fueled by developments in society, perhaps, uh, you know, the rise of a kind of technical, technological society. Is it going to, you know, remove that old left right distinction from politics? Yes. So that's, that's, that's our causal story. How, how do we explain this rise of techno populism uh, in society and to what extent Will it replace the old left-right distinction? As, as, as you mentioned, the story is based on this idea of a growing separation of society from the state. Uh, so uh, just to recap the main lines of how, how we see that playing out, we start from a pretty common sense or traditional idea of how democracy was supposed to work. The idea was that democracy is a regime that reflects social divisions within the political sphere. So a classic interpretation of democracy is that partisan divisions represent social divisions. You should take, for instance, Lipset and Rocken, see that there are social divisions, for instance, class divisions or religious divisions, which correspond to political divisions, and therefore the role of the political system is to translate social conflicts into political conflicts and then politics becomes an arena for the negotiation and hopefully the solution of these social conflicts through compromise or democratic procedures of majority rule. So democracy works when political divisions reflect social divisions. And this, this relation is assured by a number of intermediary bodies traditionally. Bodies that mediate between social divisions and political divisions, the most obvious of which are political parties, which are expressions of classes or religious groups, but other intermediary bodies existed as well. Trade unions, uh, churches, civil society, and of course, the obvious mediating body, the media, is supposed to reflect social views so that they can be heard in the political world. As we all know, all of these intermediary bodies that assure the relationship between society and politics are today in crisis. Parties are in crisis in Europe. Membership has been declining for decades. Trade unions are in crisis. Uh, churches are in crisis. The media is in crisis with the rise of social media and things like that. So there's a crisis of intermediary bodies, we claim, which is driving society and the state apart. It's driving society and the state apart because what you have is on one side an increasingly disarticulated set of interests in society. These intermediary bodies had the effect of taking particular interests, aggregating them together with each other and making them political. So, for instance, a party takes many different constituencies, creates a common platform and advances that in the political domain. As parties become in crisis, uh, as mediating bodies are in crisis, Particular interests remain disaggregated, and we have an increasingly atomized society in which groups are not fused with one another, but increasingly separated from one another. So an increasingly atomized society on one hand is separated from a politics which has no link with society. And all that remains to it is the mission of politics in the abstract, which is to create an idea of the general will, 
So politics becomes disanchored from society and increasingly tied to ideas of generality, of, of, of truth, of the people, these abstract concepts of, that are disarticulated from social conflicts and ideas of the whole become dominant. So as society and politics shift apart, you have a more individualized or atomized society and a politics that's more about the whole. Uh, not unmediated conceptions of the whole, like the people or truth. And that's why you see the emergence of populism and technocracy, we claim, as the main structuring poles of society. Populism and technocracy are expressions of a politics of the whole, a politics of generality, disanchored from bases in concrete interests within society. So interests are the enemies of populism, the enemies of technocracy, you, so that's what technopopulism does. Whereas previously democracy was a conflict between parts, one party against another part, and that's a horizontal conflict, left versus right. With technopopulism, you get a conflict which is vertical between the whole and the parts. The whole is good and the parts are bad. So that's our story of how you're getting, uh, in, it's this, crisis of intermediary bodies, which is leading to a separation of society from the state, which is leading to a politics of abstract generalities, like truth and the people, in which social interests have no part, place. And that's what we call technopopulism. Well, it's a fascinating analysis. Uh, Carlo Invenizzi Accetti and Christopher Bickerton. The book is called Technopopulism, the New Politics of Democratic the new logic, sorry, of democratic politics. And we're grateful to Carlo Inveniziacetti for sharing his insights about the rise of technocracy and populism or technopopulism in contemporary politics. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank the Otto and Fran Walter Foundation for its support of our European programming. I also want to thank Risto Voinov for his technical assistance and Meryl Solvner for helping to produce this episode. I also want to thank Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for this show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for, for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.